right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello, hello, hello. And we are down a couple of men, but we do have a special guest. Please welcome Johnny Abatoy. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. How's it going, Johnny? Good. <laughs> uh, today, we are going to be talking about the proposal to tax unrealized gains. Uh, before we do, I want to introduce our guest. So Johnny is a certified public accountant accredited in business valuations. He's a senior analyst for regional public accounting firm, and he provides business valuation, consulting, and litigation support services for both public and private companies for purposes related to gift and estate tax planning, mergers and acquisitions, buying and selling agreements, shareholders, disputes, breach of contract, and family law. That is a mouthful, and that is exactly why we have him on to kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going to be discussing today. So, Johnny, we appreciate you being here. On a personal note, Johnny uh, is actually someone I've known since my childhood. We met when I was probably like, I don't know, 11, 12 years old. I happened to go to the same college, so known him for quite some time. Uh, let's see, the three things we're going to talk about, uh, the tax of unrealized gains. Biden has also proposed bolstering the IRS, and then also the proposal to allow the IRS to audit bank accounts with transactions transactions of $10,000 or more annually. Before that, I think we have a few announcements. Johnny, where can they find us on our social medias? Um, yeah, be sure to follow In Between the Wires on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And so also be on our social media. We sometimes go live at noon central, and sometimes we go live at 11 central like we are today. Like we said, we all have on-running schedule. We have a few people missing um, because each of us has, you know, a lot. But that's why we try to say around noon central, they can look for us on Saturdays. And so you can find us on the YouTube channel. We broadcast live there through the Facebook page and apparently now also on Twitter as well. So we are slowly spreading everywhere to our corporate overlords. Praise be the Zuck. Why don't we start with an overview of the current proposals? Now, this stems back to our previous conversations about the Build Back Better agenda. Um, as you saw, if you follow us on any of our social medias, we did update you that the $1.2 trillion infrastructure spending was passed that originally had bipartisan support. It was tied up in the House because the members of the squad wanted to see if they could leverage cinema and mansion in the Senate to get them to to pass the Build Back Better agenda. Didn't work out so well, so they went ahead and passed it, and that has now gone into law. But included in the Build Back Better agenda was this idea that we want a capital gains tax, and also there's a proposal of we want to tax unrealized capital gains. So Johnny, why don't you just start by kind of laying a little bit of a, a, a framework for us. For our viewers who don't know, what is a capital gains tax? What are capital gains? How do they function? So a simple definition of capital gains are the profit on a sale of an investment. So if I were to buy a stock of a publicly traded company at $10 a share, and a year later I decided to sell that stock for $12 a share, I would realize a capital gain of $2, and that $2 would be taxed. So this was originally proposed by Ron Wyden, who is the finance chair from Oregon. And basically, there's a proposal now to tax the unrealized capital gains on liquid assets held by billionaires is kind of the language there. Uh, what, is, what does that mean, Johnny? If they're, if they're wanting to tax the unrealized gains, you told us what realized gains were. What does it mean if they're unrealized? So um, back to the realized capital gains, you know, two elements of that is that they're real, they're tangible, and also is that they're a realization of return for risk of the investment. So when I invest in a company, I have a risk of losing that investment. And when I sell, I am basically getting a return for that risk. 
a reward uh, for taking on that risk. So on the flip side, unrealized gains, they are basically the appreciation of the investment itself before you have sold it. So they're not real, they're intangible, and they're really hypothetical because if I were to sell this investment, then I would have this return or this realized return. And so that return for your risk of investing in that company, your investment is still at risk and you have not realized that that reward or return yet. So if you look at how you start out with the example of you buy a stock and then you later sell it, and that's a realized gain. So this is in a situation where if I buy a stock and I hold on to it for a year and the stock value goes up because you know I've invested in a decent company, is that the difference between where I bought it at and where the stock is valued at? Is that what we're looking at as the unrealized gain? Yeah, that is correct. So if I don't sell that stock a year later and it's worth $12, the unrealized gain is $2. And to kind of, kind of follow up, when I think there even like recently went around of like how it said, you know, Elon Musk made like something like $26 billion in a day or something like that. Some headline of like that one about. Now, was that also, if I'm understanding then correctly, that would also be in this category of kind of unrealized gain of where, you know, those companies' valuations just rose up dramatically in a given day. Yeah, so when we're talking about Elon Musk's net worth increasing the way it has, that's all unrealized. But his actual, I believe it was a stock option that he exercised. And so when he did that, those are realized gains that he will be paying taxes on. And for him, it's almost, it's probably 99% realized gains because I believe his options, uh, the strike price was around $6 and he's selling them at $1,000 a share since that's the value now. So yeah, he's paying, everything is realizable gains basically. And he's going to be paying taxes on that. And because he put it up to his Twitter followers on that poll, uh, whether or not he should sell his stock. So when he was holding the stock option in the company, it was unrealized. And then when he sells it because of his Twitter followers votes, then it becomes realized. Is that is that kind of the the strike point like you were talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I was... Uh, you this all saw that, right? This is finances are fun. <laughs> what did you say, Josh? I was like, this is why finances are, are, are fun. <laughs> Entire market decisions to the number of billions, also known as the money that it takes to fund several federal programs to done the Twitter polls. Yeah, he said, I think it was like something like 10% of his stocks. And actually, he pointed out that he's he's experimenting with this because of the possible passing of this legislation, which would which would tax him on his. Would you say it was Josh? Was it eight billion in a day, something like that? Um, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know that the his option he took ended up being twenty six billion, but I'm not sure like how much people's net worth in particular increases. Because I know most of like you know as you know Bezos, you know, and all of them as their net worth increases, it would pretty much just is their holdings that are increasing their unrealized gains. And so I think what the lawmakers are trying to get at is you know of this value is kind of being generated by the economy. It's being counted for in our, you know, quasi GDP and some masochistic way of measuring it that unrealized gains get included in GDP calculations by some agencies that they look to take action on that. But I think one of the problems that emerges is, you know, if it's not a realized gain, then there's not money to be given. And so I would be curious of how the government plans to, you know, like do this. Is it like, does the government just take their stop auctions and give it to the um, Social Security Administration and call it a good day? Um. I actually don't know. I, I I think that they've been a little fuzzy on the details on how they would do this. And they're more trying to pass 
that they will. Fun fact about government, it seems like that's kind of what they tend to be doing these days is we'll figure out how this pans out once we pass it, which is a really terrible way to do things. Uh, Johnny, can you help us understand a little bit um, about the difference between the, like the net worth, the portfolios versus like a salary? I think that there's kind of a misconception like that uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, that they are making this money. And you had mentioned earlier that this is more hypothetical. Can you help us understand a little bit about the difference between, say, a salary versus this that we got going on now? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, and the IRS have fairly simple definitions of income, and that's money earned or money received in the form of a payment for a service. So it's it's money you are getting, it's cash, and it's you know it's real. It's an inflow of cash, really. And again, back to you know the idea of uh, capital realized capital gains. Income is also tangible and real. And so I think getting to the idea of that is that is on you know you basically even on a personal level you have your your income, your financial statements, and everybody would have a balance sheet and everybody has an income statement, more or less. And on your balance sheet, those would be your assets. Those would be your your house if you own one. It would be your cash. It would be stock if you have stock. It would be all the things you own and then be your liabilities, right? Your mortgage on your house. And that would be kind of your balance sheet. And those are things that exist. They are not necessarily producing income. If they aren't producing income, it's going to show up on your income statement and already be taxed. So when you make income, when you know I get paid my monthly check, it goes towards three things, really. It goes towards my monthly expenses, or it goes towards increasing my assets, or it goes towards reducing my liabilities. And so essentially, by passing a law that taxes something that is not producing income, that is just sitting there, it's creating more demand for the inflow of money. And so you either have to have enough to cover that tax, or you have to go and sell assets that you hold. I think it does because I think that the idea that it would encourage people not to hold assets is something of an interesting idea of we might of like why to do that. Now, admittedly, that was something that that literally just like light bulbed in my head, like while you were you were talking, or Johnny, of like so I'm not sure like why they would want to do that, but I do think that that is a possible consideration of like some of the idea of um kind of the of the wealth inequality and wealth distribution of just like sitting and like holding stocks for a very long time and like providing some encouragement to push for more stock trades. But I'm also not sure because that also would at the same time then you know, punish more long-term safer investment practicing for like retirement, you know, in long, you know, long-term planning. So obviously given the idea that this is a progressive idea, you would assume there's probably some obviously progressive tax bracket that they're going to try to avoid your, you know, average day Americans 401k investments in this unrealized gains type of category. But that does seem like some interesting level of like trying to encourage some of these larger billionaires to be more active in their shares trading and the overall market. However, what that would pan out to, again, I'm not sure. But I just think that's kind of an interesting thing that you brought up. Yeah, no, I think I think to your point, you know, would it result in, in more activity? I think it would result in more activity initially because I believe this bill is, is retrospective. So people would have to pay, you know, on the already existed capital gains. I think going, going from there, what people are really going to end up doing, though, is they're going to start moving funds such that they can't be taxed. So what, what you can do is if you have, say you've got a couple billion in equities and stocks, you can form a LLC uh, investment holding company 
company and then you can put all of your stocks in there and then they're not going to be part of that tax not because they're going to be sheltered in this company because the the tax is specifically to marketable securities, not private hold, you know, private companies. So it would now be part of a private holding company. And then you're not going to be subject to the taxation. And there's just a lot of ways that these billionaires can can move funds around and shelter them so that it's not even going to be an issue going forward. I think that highlights one of the key issues here is that uh, all three of these proposals are claiming to target the ultra wealthy and we need to stop them from avoiding paying taxes. The problem is that we are motivated by nature if you're making money to try to stop paying taxes on it because that takes away from the profits that we would have made. So like you were mentioning, Johnny, the idea that the billionaires are going to keep their money in the same areas based off of new legislation. I think that that's an oversight on the legislators projections there. They're assuming that we're going to not we I'm not. I have no no horse in this race at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, but it's assuming that they're going to keep this in the same areas when in reality they won't. And if they do, I think we'll talk about the economic impacts a little bit further on. Uh, but one of the main issues might even come to light once Elon Musk sells his 10% of stocks. Uh, and Johnny, you'll probably have some more details on this. But if Elon Musk sells those shares, then the market is going to view Tesla as less stable and the stock prices overall should go down, right? Because he selling 10% of his shares of stock, which is, as I understood, a majority share of the company. If he just dumps all of that at once, isn't that going to take a pretty severe hit to the rest of the stock for Tesla? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that's exactly true. Yeah, it would be viewed by uh, market participants as as not a good thing. It would create more volatility for Tesla specifically. But yeah, when you start looking this at all these billionaires having to liquidate their holdings in public companies, it's going to create volatility. And it's going to it's going to end up hurting everybody who has holdings in the stock market, which is the vast majority of, of working Americans through 401ks or you know retirement plans or whatever. So yeah, everybody would be, I think, impacted by this. Looking at like, you know, as um, Johnny pointed out, like you move it into a private holding company, you do something like make an alphabet, make a, make a, you know, the meta company, some way to shelter all of your stocks into some, you know, better way of organization, which I know as we talked about, you know, the new meta rename, but yeah, the re like a huge part of the reason that like alphabet and meta exist is so that they can shuffle shares in, into those companies. It's not even just like a lot of like individuals, like this happens and, you know, these billionaires have to come up now with liquid assets to give the government. I think if they're required to sell, you cause a market run because then everyone knowing all of these billionaires have to dump their stocks are going to immediately go, oh, I need to go dump my stocks too, which ends up with like, a, you know, an exchange floor freeze for like several days until it's over with. And maybe even like you would have to preemptively like freeze the exchange and be like, hey, no, this is just going to happen. Then the money's going to be transferred because at some level it would be volatility, but it's not volatility and the company's doing bad. It's the volatility and the government's making people take these actions. So maybe it wouldn't end up causing a run in that scenario or necessarily done in some way. Like if it was like, you know, this is just going to happen. But at the end of the day, who's going to buy, you know, these stocks, the billionaires have to share to make this money is also the question, which is also why I think like if the government is to do something like this, it needs to, just to be an asset transfer. It's going to be like some way of like non-voting shares just given over to the, like the Social Security Administration or something and be like, here, you know, hold on to these and appreciate the dividends you occasionally, you know, get from them. Because it seems to be no easy way to do a sell without having some type of market run scenario. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I do think it would create kind of a chain reaction, at least initially. But then you also have to think about what's it going to be like going forward and where are these billionaires going to be putting their money on an ongoing basis. And I think they're going to be more motivated to put money into um, private equity, private companies and stuff like that. I think there's also going to be some companies that maybe decide they don't want to go public or some public companies that decide they want to go private. So yeah, there's just a lot of things that could happen because of this. So what you mentioned, Johnny, about maybe the billionaires putting some money in private companies, are we basically thinking then that if stocks and other things that would fall under the capital gains tax are at risk now of being taxed, then they're likely to shift that over into something that wouldn't be taxed. So maybe we've we've achieved the earlier goal that Josh mentioned of let's get the money money, uh, the figurative money out of the hands of the billionaires and investing into the market. You're saying that they might invest that into smaller companies um, as, as maybe an option to avoid those taxes? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think for sure it would protect, you know, protect their money and they would still be able to invest it. You know, I think in some of the, you know, initial talks about this bill back in 2019, you know, when it was, was kind of first brought up, it was, I think, talked about how this would also affect, you know, all asset classes of, uh, of billionaires. So um, real estate investments, private equity, that sort of thing, which would just be impossible to enforce, you know, because you're going to have to be doing annual valuations of all those assets. And then the IRS is going to have to audit those valuations and it would just create a massive logistic mess. And it really, I don't think is feasible. So yeah, so I think assuming that the idea of taxing capital gains stays focused on publicly traded securities, um, then yeah, I think moving things into the in, into private equity or moving things into real estate is going to be a way that, that people decide to hedge their investment. And that is hinging on, <laughs> on whether or not they're going to keep it in a specific area of the market because capital gains technically also includes housing. So like, even if I own my own house, right, we've finally reached an imaginary time, let's say, where everybody can own their own house. They make this broad enough, then technically, if your house appreciates in value, as you hope it does, theoretically, you can be penalized for that because your house, let's say you bought it and it was, I don't know, let's just go with $100,000. And now you've owned it for 10 years and it's $150,000. Technically, you haven't realized that gain because you haven't sold your house and yet you would pay taxes on that. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. You know, I think another thing, you know, you mentioned it, how that might impact us. You know, I think it's important to note, like right now, the focus of this is on billionaires, right? But I think it's important to note, you know, when the Income Tax Act was passed in 1913, it affected 1% of the population. Income taxes now affect 40 to 50% of the population. That's a lot more. I think the trend here is that these type of things, they tend to ratchet up. They tend to increase who they affect. And I do think it would it would become more broad. So I did, I think when you talk about this and you know the general conversation you have, um, you have to consider how it would eventually flow down and impact millionaires and um, you know lower net worth individuals. I would argue this is probably one of Fox News's favorite talking points here: the um, the scary you know estate tax type of maybe situations too, of where it is not you know if you pass a law and say this only matters if your net worth, even if we did come after you know the millionaires and say this only matters if your net worth is you know over ten million dollars, then I, I I hate to be the bearer of bad news, everyone. That's just not going to ever bother us. 
Um, <laughs> statistically, for your, your everyday person, you know, it's so you know, even directly likely. And even if it does, you know, come down from like that, usually, well, not even usually, but the government has always done, you know, progressive, you know, based income taxes. And yes, um, people, it is a like a staircase. You do not just magically start paying forty percent because you go one dollar over. I will. No, we're not. <laughs> I will argue with people all day on the internet over the nature of how an actual progressive income tax bracket works. It's incredible. Um, but so I do think there's like aspects of like that that will happen. I still think this, you know, as much as, you know, I'm always, you know, trying to get money, you know, out of these billionaires and disagreeing with like the way this is. I'm just, I'm not sure other than just asset transfer from these billionaires to the government how this works because the money just isn't there like not only is money not real but sometimes we have to make it real for it to work but other times we don't have to make it real don't think too hard about it money's very silly but this is just one of those situations where, like, where we have to make it real to do something with it and um it's not a situation where the government just opens up you know the you know the fed bank account and hits zero a few more times and hits enter so i'm just not sure where this comes from so i'll I'll go back to something Josh mentioned a second ago, uh, which was that this won't affect the vast majority of people. And this is where I'm going to disagree, not just because of Johnny's point that, you know, it, it tends, the government expands further than they initially promise because they need money. And guess what? We text one group and now we're just moving and it's no longer billionaires. It's now millionaires in the words of Bernie Sanders. We've shifted the goal. And not only that, does it tend to expand, but on average, people will move up three social classes or three tax brackets over the course of their lifetime because you start in one and then you get a full-time job you might move up you progress but on average people move up three tax brackets which means if the government stays at the billionaires sure Josh I would grant your point that you know it's not going to affect the vast majority of us but historically that's not going to be the case it's going to start there who knows how long it'll stay there but because you've got these you've got the expansion on one hand and the fact that people don't stay in the bottom tier of the economic social classes for all of their life I, I think that I have to disagree with the conclusion there and say it won't affect most people I mean at, at some level though like anyone with like 20 million dollars can like wipe their tears with a couple of hundred of them I, I mean I don't know I will give the feasibility press here um, but I'm not going to be moved because also because part of the, the grandiose tax debate I think comes down to is not even just looking about like um what the percent of your income is taxed but like what percent of money you bring in is taxed because if you look at a family who brings in seventy thousand like dollars not great not amazing depending on where you depending on where you live in some areas you know that's not you know it's going to be kind of rough even still but for a lot of like you know a lot of like smaller area midtown part of america you know you're going to survive on an income like that and you're not going to have to you know worry about taxes like this coming down on you but you're going to spend almost every one of those seventy thousand dollars that you receive and for most americans that's true you know most americans you know are going you know our, the average debt is growing and most people are going to you know spend more than they make but then you take you know millionaires and billionaires and they make a whole lot of money that just isn't taxed because you know the idea of like a sales tax just because they're not spending that money because it's kind of really hard to spend that much money unless you try like there's only so many things to buy they only have to worry then about the sales tax on that same seventy thousand dollars that the per family making seventy thousand dollars like has to pay and so we do want taxes that are explicitly targeting like these types of incomes that aren't realized by a significant majority of americans when a lot of the taxes that are put into place that johnny 
brought up that have expanded out to like affecting 40 and 50 percent of the population affect a whole lot of the money they make uh, in general, where we have the people making the most money aren't paying taxes on all of that money they're making, but the people who are making the least money are paying taxes on nearly all of the money they make. And I think that's part of the disparity that needs to be solved is if you make money, it deserves to be taxed because that's how it is for everyone making less than $100,000 a year. But I think that that goes back to one of the key distinctions we were making at the start, which was that the billionaires, quote unquote, making the money means that they're seeing their portfolio increase. It doesn't mean that they're actually making money. Like Johnny, you were talking earlier about how income is defined, uh, I think you had said, as like it has to, basically you have to receive something tangibly. They're just seeing their portfolio increase, which means that it's theoretical. When it's theoretical, the only way we can shift from theoretical money to the tangible money in that sense is to make them realize those gains and liquidate those assets, which then you have the negative effects of the volatility of the market. Uh, I don't, Johnny, what do you think? Yeah, I think another another thing of note here is that you know when you're looking at how everyone's being taxed, you know there's there's this idea of the tax gap, and it's you know what what percentage of basically all income is not being taxed. And if you and studies have shown, if you look at the U.S., the U.S. tax gap ranges depending on the study you look at between two and a half percent and three and a half and three point eight percent of GDP. So that's pretty low. And when you compare that to Europe, the tax gap in Europe, depending again on the study, ranges from 5.6% to a high of 10.7% of GDP. So that's basically income that's not getting taxed. In the US, you know, as a percent of GDP, it's really low. Like we're already taxing most things. And that is primarily affecting the billionaires. And I think um, to tag on to what Johnny said, primarily affecting the billionaires, at the end of the day, the upper class do pay a majority of the taxes to the government. I would also just like to note, like, they have a majority of the money. So, like, where else does it go? Like, it's where is it, where else is it going to come from? Like, we don't have them. <laughs> if you took the bottom 50% of America, they don't have the money to fund the government. I also think this brings it down to the idea of, like, the creation of, like, wealth and benefits and materials of our world of, like, our GDPs increasing our stock prices are going up all of the billionaires had you know their net worths increase over you know and throughout the pandemic but our inflations are are going up our wages aren't rising and so we look around and all of the numbers of the economy are growing but it always seems to me like a lot of americans aren't feeling that and i feel like you can even see that in like the trump you know kind of movement too especially in like the deep parts of like the rural south and underdeveloped areas Areas that the federal government's forgotten about of like, we look around and see all of these numbers go up. Well, and then well, Main Street's still not paved and the sidewalks are broken and there's not a good bus system in the town. Well, the Dow Jones is up, you know, 5% this week. Huzzah. And so I do feel like there's a lot of people who end up feeling that way. And so I think like this taxes like this are like projecting like at that of like numbers are going up, but life's not necessarily getting better. I think again that that's going to stem back to the politicians capitalizing on a misunderstanding of how this functions. Because, well, first of all, all of the politicians who are in favor of this are at least millionaires. They have made their money. They have participated in the stocks and their net worth went up as the pandemic went up. And what they're telling the poorest of the poor here is that look what those billionaires have and you don't. And then they take that and they kind of finagle it so that they then say, well, that means we need to take that money. They're not using it. We need to fund things that will benefit you. And then they're going to tax that money and take it. And then they're going to 
claim that, well, we've we've passed this tax. And now when we don't get the money, it's because it's not a failure on our part. Uh, it's not a misuse on our part. It's because those billionaires wanted to keep their hoard of gold so much that they found a way to avoid being taxed. But then they wrote into legislation things like the SALT tax, which is the uh, the state and local tax. Basically, the idea, um, and Johnny, correct me if I'm wrong here, the basic idea behind the SALT tax is if, you're, if you live in California, which has an enormous amount of local taxes, you can stack those taxes against your federal taxes, which means you don't pay, let's say, 60% of the California tax for the upper wealthy on top of, let's say, now the proposed 60% for the federal. It, it basically works itself out so that you're paying lower taxes. And the Democrats were the one who wrote that in for their buddies who are in California. And they're not accounting for the fact that that's going to decrease the amount of projected tax revenue. So the problem that I have is we take this emotionally charged observation of a truth. Some people have more money than others. And then we use it to justify taking the money. And then we don't use that money well. And then we also trick these people into believing you're never going to be affected by these taxes, which is false on two accounts. The first is... The government expands where they tax and who they tax as they have. And the second is, if these billionaires are moving around their theoretical money and it creates instability in the market, you live in the recession. So like you're affected one way or the other. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with that. And, and to something you mentioned, how sometimes these bills end up favoring the wealthy in some sort of way, you know, with the salt tax example, this proposed legislation of taxing unrealized gains is ripe for manipulation. And the way that would work is if you have a loss, say, instead of an appreciation of your investments, you're able to carry that loss forward. So let's say I lose $2 billion instead of gaining $2 billion. Well, I can carry that forward to wipe out any gains I get in the future. I can also carry it back to wipe out gains that I pay taxes on. So now I can have the government writing me checks for periods of time when I have a loss. And so savvy investors, which billionaires have the money to pay the most savvy investors, they can start setting up portfolios such that they have unrealized losses as part of their investment strategy to carry forward and carry back. Okay, the intentionally lose, having unrealized loss, thank you for bringing it up. This is one of, I think, my most obscure obsessions about, about modern economics. And I think it is something that goes unrealized. Everyone's seen the news article, Uber's never posted a profit in a quarter. And it's like, yeah, welcome to the point like Amazon, people, you know, like Amazon didn't pay any taxes this year. And that's because Amazon has been doing exactly this of been being like, no, we, we lost money here. So, you know, we're bringing this forward and writing off taxes. But I think there are so, so many tech startups going on right now of where there are just venture capitalists pouring in money on, you know, money and like letting it grow and then developing, especially when I think in the idea of Uber, like Uber started off as like this, you know, rideshare thing. But at the end of the day, like their long term goal has always been like these, the, an autonomous taxi to do away, you know, with having drivers and continue to operate all of it. So they grew their customer base and they use drivers and then they just dumped money into self, you know, driving car research to the amount of exorbitant losses. Yes, it, you know, at that point, it's standing at the traditional risk reward kind of risk management idea of investing. But nonetheless, people are so willing to do that because they realize the idea of a self-driving autonomous taxi you can call from your phone is going to be incredibly profitable in the future. And then they'll have like Amazon type profits, Google like profits, and then they'll not pay taxes for years, you know, after this first like decade or so that Uber's existed consistently posting um, quarterly losses. It is one of, I think, the most fascinating economic tricks they've discovered. 
I mean, to me, I think this gets manipulated politically as we're seeing through these proposals to say that savvy businessmen and women are the reason that you all are poor. When in reality, it's the fact that if you don't know how to invest money, you can't advance yourself. And instead of finding ways to teach people to invest or to teach people how to use their money, it's treated as though it is sinful and evil for you to accrue wealth. And whether or not that money is figurative, like in a stock portfolio or in um, a net worth thing, um, or whether it's going to be physical, like I, I made an income. I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings here is that the reason they're not paying taxes, the reason that they're not having to deal with the same things that the middle and lower classes are, or the upper middle, we'll say, because I think that's where they really get targeted. Lower, lower is not going to be paying much taxes. The upper, upper wealthy are understanding that it was a loss, therefore I can use that to counteract the taxes that I should be paying because I took a risk. And like in a capitalistic society, we have to reward people for risks in the same way that they can be punished like if they make a bad call or else they won't self-regulate. Like if we want the prosperity of an economic system, we have to reward people who invest. And part of that comes through the stock portfolio increases or the gains that they can have. And if that's taxed, now the problem that I'm worried about is we're, we're reducing that incentive, which we mentioned earlier might shift where they invest and how they invest. But particularly with the kind of stagnation in the economy and the recession that we're kind of being warned about that we're in or slash going into, I'm worried worried about the economic impacts that that's going to have long term. I don't know if you two have thoughts on that. That's why I would hope if the government does this, they're going to do it in an intelligent way. Like if I was to rough out some very, very rough enforcement, forgive me, everyone who knows mechanics of actual government for the butchery I'm about to do, I would basically have those billionaires shares either manipulated into becoming non-voting shares, but still worth their capital but in some like basically transfer the share over to the government without giving the government a controlling interest in the company, but basically making the government the new owner so it can then collect the dividend and capital growth that is then on that asset. You then take that and you give it to the Social Security Administration and you say, thank you all for your business. And you do it that way, because that seems to be about the most least idiotic way to go about this. The Social Security Administration makes sense because the Social Security Administration holds on to other assets sometimes throughout the others. The other like gov uh, branches of government love to borrow from the Social Security Administration. And in general, I don't think it's a bad idea to have the Social Security Administration kind of pseudo invested in the American economy itself as acting as kind of the public, you know, retirement program. It then makes sense to have it, you know, kind of bonded to the economy. So like as the economy grows, the collective ability to care for our sick and elderly also grows. I think that's also just, you know, why it makes sense to give it there instead of the treasury to be used for whatever other reasons the government could come up with. Because that's also like what most people who encounter the economy, uh, encounter the stock exchange encounter as they encounter it as their retirement program. And like the rise of like Robin Hood and like, like Bitcoin is changing this of like where there are like more day traders that are doing it as like a source of like active income versus long term income. Godspeed, you will never convince me to do that. I will keep slowly investing in accounts as I move through my life and I will not change. But I think there's a way this can be done smartly. I also think this is kind of probably getting at still of the problem of fixing a, you know, a symptom and not the cause of it of like, okay, 
were upset of the fact that the, these billionaires are having such massive um, gains and people, you know, wages aren't rising. So if wages are were rising, then they wouldn't have all this extra money to have the extra unrealized capital gains. So thus fix the wage problem. And you also fix this concern about unrealized capital gains. And you don't have to do some really weird market manipulation type stuff to not cause a run on the market to enact this plan. But I think that's why like, it still comes down to of, like they're trying to find ways, but it's not getting at like the same you know, growing problem of people you know, hate their working conditions. And so a lot of people are quitting and businesses are struggling to hire again and wages are stagnating fairly well. And even if people kind of go, sometimes even as they go up, in their economic status, they then then get wiped back down in economic status through our awful healthcare system where you save up, you know, you work hard and you get really lucky, in my opinion, have a good paying job in retirement. And you walk out of that with, say, over like a million and a half, two million of assets in retirement. And then, well, bam, your partner gets cancer and it's gone. Because you have so much of an investment, you don't requalify for like Medicaid and then you just pay and pay and pay and pay and pay. And then so people go up, but then like while people do still increase on the, you know, kind of economic chart, people also like still dramatically usually, you know, wind back down at the end of it. And so that is like a bad sign for like the ability to generate like intergenerational wealth for common Americans and realizing not only is it just do I want to, you know, rise up in economic classes, but I want to make sure I leave my children in a higher economic economic class than, you know, I had. That was a lot. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go back to what you had said about the generational wealth. To me, Josh, I think that the big issue here is that generational wealth might be hampered by a lack of Medicare, but it's not the primary factor. In fact, if you want to see a further divide in generational wealth, this concept would do exactly that. And the reason I believe that would be the case is because Elon Musk has so much theoretical financial assets to work with that he can put up to Twitter whether or not he'll sell 10% of his Tesla stock. You know who can't do that? Middle class, upper middle class individuals who have just been smartly investing for years. And when the government, you, you mark my words, when the government comes for their money because they can't fund whatever the next inordinate bloated governmental spending package happens to be. Come back to this tape and I'm going to play this and say, I told you that was going to be the case. And and the nice thing about this is if it never happens, it'll just get buried in the ether. But the problem here is that the generational divide, and I'll give you a scenario here. Let's say that I have not a lot of money, but let's say like you mentioned, I have the million dollars in, in portfolio. That's, that's a lot, but not if you're focusing on like retirement and or splitting that amongst, let's say you have three kids, right? Then that's not the same weight. Still a hefty sum, nothing to scoff at, but it's split up. And that's what my children can then take and do with as they will. They can invest it, what have you. The problem is with the 37% tax on capital gains that's proposed in the Build Back Better, coupled with the unrealized gains, which I would assume eventually trickles down and causes problems for even upper middle class people, I won't be able to pass on that same generational wealth because of the taxes, which means that it is only going to be the ultra wealthy that again, stay up in those classes. And it's going to be the middle and upper middle classes that are going to be impacted the most. Uh, Johnny, uh, what do you think about, uh, Josh had mentioned, he thinks that this concept can work as long as it's done smartly. To me, I would say it's <laughs> government being smart. is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> uh, what what do you think? Hang on. Um, before that, I said yeah, I would sure. fight people on the internet over this. Johnny, what is the floor for the estate tax in the United States? Um, the floor? 
off the top of my head, I'm not exactly sure. Oh, damn. I think it's like 10 million. So, Ryan, no, quit complaining. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. Are you talking about, oh, you're talking about like what you can basically gift without being taxed? The yeah. exemption amount? Yes. It's it's around 11 million, I believe. And um, previous to um, Trump changing that, I believe it was somewhere around like 5 million. Oh, so but, but, about doubled. So, but yeah. coupled so, yeah, no, with so, this is the stepped up gains tax, which means if I have a pre, let's say I invest in real estate and it increases in value when I give that, then like the same people who want to pass these taxes also want to go after the stepped up gains tax. Like my point here is that they will find ways to take it from you. (laughs) So no, it's not functional. Anyways, $11 million, found a few hundred of them wipe them. Um, but Johnny, so am I completely off kilter? Is there a smart way to do this or is this a ubiquitously a bad idea? I take the position that it is just a, a bad idea. I don't think there really is a good way to do it. You know, you're disincentivizing economic activity. And like, what's the point of an investment? Like it is funding for a company, right? Like companies do rely on investments on, you know, people investing in equity. I mean, that's what you're buying when you're buying stock, you're buying equity in a company. And like, that is one of the ways that they support their operations and, you know, their funding. You've got two ways to, two ways to fund a company. You can do it through debt or you can do it through equity. And so, yeah, I think it disincentivizes that activity and it's going to just cause kind of a ripple effect. You know, it's going to hurt individual investors in the middle class and it's going to hurt companies, which is going to end up hurting the employees. Do you think I'm off base that the people who will get pinched the most are going to be the people who are not the ultra wealthy, that it's going to be more middle, upper middle classes? I, I do. I do because I think the ultra wealthy are just going to get out of it. I think they're going to take advantage of the loss carrybacks and carry forwards. And I think they're going to, you know, move things into private investments. And I think their wealth is hardly going to take a hit and they're not going to end up paying very much tax. All right. So what we'll do then, Johnny, for the hot takes is it'll you'll get the last say of the last say. So you can, you know, say whatever you want to about us or the, hopefully the situation. But we will be right back with our hot takes after this. <laughs> And we don't actually go anywhere. (laughs) All right, so I'll start. So my hot take here is going to be that the trickle-down effect that's going to come from this is going to impact the upper middle and the middle classes the most for a couple of reasons. The largest reason being that the Build Back Better agenda, including this tax, the driving purpose is that they don't have enough money and they're claiming that they want to alleviate the cost that's going to cost zero dollars, blah, blah, blah. Aside from a misunderstanding that the fact that you think you can pay for this doesn't mean it's not going to to cost anything. The big problem that I have there is when the billionaires like Johnny just mentioned find ways to shelter their money and protect it from taxes, the government still needs funding for this, which means they will go after inevitably people who can't get out. So we saw the legislators write the salt tax exemption stuff for themselves and their buddies. Uh, We see that they find ways to shelter themselves from any of the garbage legislation they give the general population. It's no different here, which means that you're going to see the trickle down effects in one way, shape or form. The other hot take I have here is I think the Democratic Party is deliberately taking advantage of the people who are in a lower middle, lower lower class where they have and they see financial devastation and they see that this is affecting them. And then the point is other people have money and you don't. And they're manipulating this to be the reason they have it is because they want to keep it from you as opposed to terrible tax situations like what we're passing make that worse. And I think that that's being manipulated as a political drive to pass what they want and that it's presented with this front of we really want to help the lower class. But then 
they don't. And I would also say, this is probably the hottest take I'll have, the government isn't entitled to your money. I'm not saying don't pay taxes, but I'm saying that a driving force behind this is the quote-unquote moral reasoning. And that is that there is devastation, therefore we can't take your money, but the government can because we wrote it to be the case. And I think that's a terrible reason to do this. Aside from the crippling economic effects, I think that that's just not a moral superior argument to hold. And I would lastly close my hot takes by saying that the government has a vested interest in keeping that class divide. We don't actually see them improving the situations. Josh mentioned Medicare earlier. Like, we don't really see them improving situations. We see them throwing money at it. And mainly we see them collecting money. They don't really do a great job. So my final thought here is I don't think that there's a smart way to do this. So I will quote my accounting professor because it's like an accounting class back in the, there actually a couple of business classes back at my community college. And one of the key mantras when we were looking at the idea of taxation is you tax when money moves because that's the only time money actually exists. Money is not real. Money has no actual thing, nothing backing it. The only thing backing it is our social trust in it that the US dollar is worth one US dollar. That's the only thing that happens. When the government needs to increase the debt ceiling, they just enter the computer, they hit zero a bunch more times and they hit enter. And all of a sudden, the government has all of this more money. So it doesn't quite exist. So in order for it to be usable in terms of the government, you have to get it when it's moving. Because even if you have this idea of where you know you're being taxed so that this, so you must then produce um, liquid assets. You must produce cash in this terms to write the check to the IRS. That means they have to either sell assets or tap the liquid assets they have on hand. If they have to sell the assets, then you actually aren't taxing the billionaire. You're taxing the person who had to buy the billionaire's stuff so the billionaire could pay the government. Now, that person may have gotten those assets and then they can grow and like they'll make money off those. But nonetheless, someone had to buy the stuff off the billionaire for that stuff to be reliquidated. So like from the get-go, I have concerns about about the mechanics of an item like this. And even like capital gains of realizing of it when you're selling a tax. So you sell a stock and then you pay uh, taxes on it, I think is one way to do it. I think another way to do it would be to put a sales tax on the stock exchange. And one of the most hysterical tax plans um, I've ever heard of in my life is to be like, yeah, you just have to pay 10% more than the stock price actually is to the government just to drive some people absolutely nuts. Because I do think that would also help get at some of this as well. And I do think kind of the larger philosophy and problem of this tax program is looking at like what, you know, is happening on our little, you know, planet Earth hurtling through the, you know, universe and who gets to have, you know, credit for the production of what we do. Because at the end of the day, that's what money is. It's it's credit. It's exchange. It's not even just credit in the financial sense of credit. It's, it's social credit. It's a reward of saying you deserve something because you did something and this is your reward for it. And and so I do wonder when we look at the communal might of humanity, whether or not we always end up being okay with giving credit to one single person for at the end of the day is the work of so many other people because Elon's must, you know, stock goes up not because he's necessarily doing something incredibly hard work, but because his software engineers and his mechanical engineers have done something amazing with their cars and his aerospace engineers have done amazing things with their math. And he sat in an office and signed paperwork. So where does the credit 
have to come into it within the value of the production. I think this was especially clear back in the idea of like when a manual laborer, like someone would own a mine and these people would be down there digging the mine out of there, coming out with pennies, sometimes that were corporate pennies that were only good at the corporate store. And, you know, the mine owner was sitting there in a nice furnished house who signed paperwork all day and these men died of black lungs and he signed paperwork and had nice dinners and so that's the idea of like credit of like this inequality of the production of humanity and is it how do we distribute the rewards of what we were all so interconnectively um, generating so you know, nonetheless as always you know eat the rich but this is a bad way of doing it all right well my hot take is i've got two so First, the billionaires are already paying their fair share. The top 1% of taxpayers pay approximately 40% of all gross taxes, and the top 50% of taxpayers pay 97% of gross taxes. So that means the bottom 50% of taxpayers are paying 3% of gross taxes. I say gross taxes, that's before credits, that's before refunds. So if you take that into account, um, the top 50% are paying all of that on a net basis. My second hot take is that at some point, taxes disincentivize economic activity. And and so I think this is, there's the theory of deadweight loss of taxation. And it's this idea that supply and demand have um, an equilibrium point. And when I want to buy a good, the person selling the good, we're going to come to this point and agree on a price and quantity. And that's kind of determined by market forces. When you tax that, you are artificially lowering the point of supply and demand. So if I go into the grocery store with $10 and I know I'm going to buy 10 apples because that's what I have. Well, if the government is going to tax that at 10%, what's going to happen is I can't buy 11 apples or I can't buy 10 apples and then pay the extra dollar in taxes because I don't have $11. I have $10. So what happens is I buy nine apples and I pay the 90 cent in taxes. And so it artificially um, lowers demand and supply. And that hurts the economy. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated your your time and your expertise. And I'm sure you all find yourself somewhere between the liars. Catch us back here next week. Uh, time to be determined since we're coming up <laughs> on the holidays for the next couple of weeks. Uh, goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.